We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Arson sticks two fingers up at fans that say you can't teach old dogs new tricks by crashing out of the FA Cup in the third round for the first time ever. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Uh, if you did get a chance to listen to the Arscast Extra this week, um, I had a chance to fill in for James, and uh, those of you listening to this at least presumably were able to tolerate that, but I just wanted to extend a huge thank you to uh, Andrew from Arsblog for letting me do that, um, for putting up with me, for uh, being willing to chat football with me for 90 minutes, but now the guys who have been beaten in a submission doing that week in, week out, who don't have a choice, who are stuck talking to me about football and listening to my insane rantings, are here, and we are going to cover Arsenal's third round, FA Cup exit to championship side, Nottingham Forest, uh, with Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Paul's on Twitter at Posing in My Pants. Hello, Paws. Woohoo! Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Our resident stats expert, Scott, will not be here today because uh, there just isn't a lot of data accessible um, from the FA Cup. And so, you know, it mostly be sort of generic stuff. And ultimately, I think we have a lot more meta issues to get to today, so to speak, instead of just what happened on the pitch, the granular uh, footballing discussion may be left a little bit aside today to cover some of the bigger overarching topics. But let's start with the game. Paul, I'll start with you just for a second um, and save the good stuff for last. So uh, in terms of the lineup, the managers come in for criticism with hindsight for choosing a weakened squad. He's gotten away with it before. Did you have any concerns about the squad that he picked? Uh, the starting 11, not really. Um, the bench was was where we looked very, very pale. 
Um, I did read Ars Blog's <laughs> blog this morning, and he kind of nailed it. It's just kind of there were no ga- game changers on the bench. Um, and, you know, the manager had his reasons. I guess my feeling on this game was we've kind of got away with a few over the years, and we get caught occasionally, your Bradfords. And this just felt like a bit of a Bradford day, and it kind of happened. And I guess the difference of Bradford is maybe we had a couple more players who could impact things from the bench. But um, shit happens is kind of my feeling on it. Um, you know, we'll get into broader issues. I was a, I was kind of, I knew it was going to be ugly on Twitter. Uh, I kind of avoided it, and then I got to Twitter, and man, did it exceed my expectations. So I kind of, I think this is kind of a, a moment for well, it's, it's always a tinderbox waiting for yeah. a match, right? I mean, that, that's been the problem. Yeah. It's something Tim's mentioned on this podcast yeah. is that, unfortunately, people are so on edge, uh, the edge yeah. of an outburst with this club and this manager right now that it only takes, you know, one disappointment or bad result for it to all set off again. L- let me ask you this, though, Paul. Yeah. Arsenal tweeted out the lineup in uh, picture form and had it listed yeah. as a back three with Debushi, Murtisacker, and Holding as the central defenders, Nelson and yeah. Niles as the wingbacks. And when I looked at that, it felt balanced enough with Elneny and Willock in front of it. Had I known that it was going to be Murtisacker and Holding playing as the central two and a back four, I think I would have been uh, putting on one of my daughter's diapers. I mean, is that yeah. was that surprising to you that it wound up being a four with those two at center back? I didn't really twig it at the time, but as the game unfolded, you could see how Mertesacker needed that cover. Um, I mean, it was just an ongoing massacre that we didn't adjust to. Uh, Wenger often talks about how he hates being up in the stands, but it gives him a really view of the really good view of the pitch. So he had a really good view of what was going on. And I mean, we just got hammered again and again with. Uh, you know the 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 distance between the the two center backs and um, and the speed of the I young mean, players i mean you know you've got yeah. really young players out there for forest and you've got a, what is he 18 or 19 year old center forward and the one thing that young players can do is run straight right and i mean yeah. instead of making it tough on him sitting a little deeper with our defensive line and and forcing him to sort of think his way through our defense we just said go have a run at us and you've got a chance to to catch us out and it was similar to what Murata did to us um, against Chelsea, but but Tim, yeah. I want everyone to get a quick crack at this, so I'll give you one as well. I mean, first thoughts, were you frustrated by the lineup or the bench or both or neither? Um, the bench mainly. I, I really did think we'd go with the back three as well, and I kind of thought, oh, Nelson at right wing back, I'd kind of prefer to see him in a more natural position, but I didn't have too many problems with it. I Once it became apparent that it was a back four, I mean, immediately I thought to myself, Debushi is not very quick anymore to the point that we absolutely will not play him at right wing back. Um, it's either right-sided centre-back or right full-back. You know, Mertesacker has always been slow and he's getting slower. Holding is not quick. Even if you drop Chambers in there, he's not particularly quick. If you haven't got quick defenders, you've really got to go with a back three. And um, what, what, what Forrest did wasn't really that sophisticated in terms of just, you know, dropping the ball in behind us all the time and watching us chase backwards. I mean... It's absolute suicide to put a you know a defence that slow, where Maitland Niles is your pace and he's twenty and he's a left back play, you know he's a midfielder playing at left back like so you're relying on him to do a lot of that heavy lifting which is just absolutely insane and I was um, 
I, I didn't realise till I got home that Forrest's centre forward was only 18 because I was looking at him and I, I thought he was some grizzled veteran because he was bullying Murtisacker and holding and not just for pace. You know, he was very, very, you know, he's buying fouls, sometimes a bit cheaply, sometimes going down a bit easily, but it was quite a grizzled, wizened performance. And I kind of, I got home and I realised he was 18 and I just thought that he bullied Holding and Murtasaka. He bullied them for pace. He bullied them in terms of the tricks he had to draw those fouls on on the centre circle and everything. And yeah, it, it, it was just... Had I known it was a back four, I think I would have been a bit more concerned about the lack of pace in it, um, particularly because, you know, Elneny doesn't really... Elneny's quite a typical Arsenal player. He's decent on the ball, but off it, he's, as we saw with the second goal, if you watch the second goal from behind the goal, is it Lehigh? I've got no idea how you pronounce yeah. that. Yeah. He's on the move and Elneny is just like, I don't know, he's looking at the stars or something and he, he finds out way too late that that ball's broken uh, because he's just like looking at the stands um, or something. And whereas Lehigh is like right on the move, the instant that cross loops up in the air, he's looking for it. And that, that, that kind of summed it up. And it's, um, you know, I watched Adrian Clark's breakdown as I always do shortly before coming on air. And it's not because Adrian, you know, often does like a really good tactical overview and it's not like him to reach for the so-called intangibles but he just kept highlighting on all of the goals where Forrest were just sharper than us they were just a second quicker to the ball they were brighter to situations and that really was the story of the game um, and I and I think I, I think Forrest taught a lesson to teams like West Brom teams like Southampton who tried to hold us to a draw um, and it's quite interesting, actually, Forrest and Norwich have done this to us because because we were quite lucky to go through against Norwich in the Carabao Cup and Norwich exposed us a fair few times in behind. And I think where the Premier League's becoming so grim in terms of teams just playing for survival and sitting 10 behind the ball all the time because they don't want to get relegated, when we've come up against championship opposition, they've gone for us a bit more. And uh, if I were an opposing manager, Arsenal is not a team I would... Without Alexis and Ozil, Arsenal is not a team that I would worry about attacking at all. And uh, I think Forrest showed that, really. And um, with with that back four playing up on the halfway line, we really invited them to. Yeah. I, the, the question then, I mean, Tim, just really quickly, though, is mm. once it became painfully obvious what was happening there... What's two real quick things? First of all, you and I retired Murdersacker on this podcast, and I don't know how yeah. uh, he managed to get back in the side after we did that, but he did. Um, <laughs> first of all, were you surprised to see him starting again after his last start? W- was really evidence that the game has probably passed him by. But then, secondly, yeah, I know he's in the stands, but was the manager too slow to change what was clearly an ever-present problem for us? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, Murdersacker didn't play the West Ham game. I don't think he played the Borisov game. Like Murtasaka hasn't, he's actually been eased out of this second eleven, and uh, I think his comments afterwards were really interesting. Um, and I, I agree with what Andrew said on the Askcast that I don't think he was excluding himself. In fact, far from it. I think he can, was. Can almost I read them just for anyone who hasn't heard yeah. them? I, just just in case, so that they're not without context mm. because they are pretty biting. And I'll just read a a segment here. The manager made a lot of changes, gave a lot of trust to players who haven't played a lot recently, and I don't think anybody justified their selection today. That sums it up, I think. Yeah, yeah. And do you know what it reminded me of, actually? It reminded me of Arteta when he retired, and he said something like, for the last 18 months, 
um, I haven't been good enough. I haven't been good enough for this football club, and I know that. And and I kind of feel like this, this is quite similar from Murtasaka. Like, you know, I've I don't know. I, he's going into another role, so perhaps it's a bit different. But it just feels like, you know, Wenger is is lacking ruthlessness so much with so many players that, you know, some of the more responsible leadership type ones like Murtasaka and Arteta, who are both great professionals, are actually telling him. Um, and, you know, it, it's countless quotes like this now um, in the last 12 months or so from his players, either saying <laughs> great they wanted it more or, you know, so the players didn't justify their selection. You know, it's, it's just, it, I mean, it's, it's end of day stuff. But because nobody will pull the trigger on Arsene Wenger, least of all himself, we're just like, you know, like you've been watching Stoke the last three weeks and you've just been going, yeah, Mark Hughes is going to get sacked any day now, any day now. It's almost like he's trying to get sacked. And that, that kind of feels like what Arsenal have been for the last 12 months. It feels almost like um, the players and the manager are playing chicken with the ownership and seeing like, let's see how, let's see how long we can play this kind of manager on the verge of the sack scenario out before like someone will actually do something and i think the answer to that is probably quite depressing to be honest well i mean we've shown you can do it for a really long time yeah, <laughs> apparently yeah. um clive i, I want to get down to the nitty-gritty with you because you're sort of the coach of the podcast um so you know look the, the manager takes a lot of stick for uh, uh the way we play and in particular the way we defend and a lot of people have said and we have said on this pod you can't really criticize individual defenders because the system leaves them on an island. And I think today was sort of an example of both. The system clearly left them on an island. You've got the world's slowest giraffe playing center back next to a very, very slow young man in Rob Holding and no cover behind and 40 yards of pitch behind them. That's an example of the system exposing the players. But the way they get their first goal is an example of the players just being headless. Um, how do, where do you point the finger and how do you explain a situation where a guy can just be standing unmarked in front of our goal on a free kick? Um, or the corner kick leading up to that where they play a short corner and there are literally no Arsenal defenders in position to cover it. Um, you know, those aren't sy- systemic problems in terms of the way the team's set up. W- where's the responsibility fall there? <laughs> wow. Um, I reckon it falls with a manager. What do you think? Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I get right, but, but right. So, like, it's not the system. That something is wrong that the players could be so switched off and we see that a lot i mean is it a lack of intensity well, in training we're, is it a lack just, of we're actually gen- generally pretty good on set pieces historically right. yes. over the last while so my my point paul though is is more just the fact that these are these are lapses in awareness lapses in preparation yeah. i'm, a, I'm agreeing know. with you really i'm, I'm saying we Indeed. have actually been doing well against set pieces so this is lapses by players for new listeners that is paul agreeing with me that's what that sounds like <laughs> um when you when we disagree you'll you'll recognize it go ahead clive yeah, it's it's just basics, right? So you can tell ten-year-old kids when two men go out to a corner, you go and two men go out. Simple as that. You leave your job, you go to the main source where the ball is. You go out, you come off the post, you do whatever you got to do. You go and block it at source. We don't do that on the on the goal on the where the wall was lined up, where defensive line was. I mean, I was just aghast. That's just I don't know. I don't know what level that belongs at, but it's it's just a joke. Is that on it a doesn't belong at a, yeah, it's. I think it's on a spinner. He's got what a spinner's done. He's lined up the wall to protect himself, but no one thought about the line. Who owns the back line? Who owns the line? Someone should be saying, "You're too deep. Get the wall out. Change the wall, or we drop the line." 
simple as that. You just decide your back line is, is, is your gold, right? So you've got to protect that. That's got to be held. You don't have people running in front of your goalkeeper. I mean, when I watch Arsenal sometimes, you know, my son was at the academy for, for four years. And what they used to do before every single training session, four or five times a week, they do something called shadow play, where you literally have a set move and you move the ball around. It's sort of semi-contested, and you pass, you pass, you pass, you pass, you pass. You get into a pattern. It's out to the fullback, back to the goalkeeper, out the other side, in the centre mid, out to the left winger, cross goal. Just did it for 15 minutes every tour, every single training session for four years. When I watch Arsenal play on the ball, it's like we're playing shadow play. We're playing coach football, pattern play, with no real end product. But as soon as somebody else has the ball, it's like oh we got to do something else. And it just epitomises to me that the manager is basically a, a ball movement, flow-based, on-the-ball coach. Off the ball, it's down to individuals' ability to win their duels. When they don't win their duels, we get what we get. I always felt that Wenger's really portrayed his philosophy. I've never felt he's had a structured team, a structured centre midfield, apart from the days when Vieira, etc., was there. He's never really had it. But what he always used to have was either a defenders who were slow but absolutely positionally perfect, or he had razor sharp, quick defenders. So okay, I'm gonna leave you exposed, but I'm gonna make sure I've got these athletes in the back that win every race. What we have now is a set of defenders who are slow and positionally inept. So you we're getting what we get. And and Brazil, the the actual forest manager, actually said he said to his players at half time, there is nothing to fear here. I mean how does that make you feel? There, not we're great. Arsenal Football Club. <laughs> not great, there is but nothing not to fear here. If they score, keep going, we'll get in. That means he's looking at the players, he's looking at their attributes, he's not looking at the badge in the front of the shirt because he knows the players that we have were not adequate. And I excuse the youngsters on that. I'm sure we get to them later on, but I excuse the youngsters on them. I'm talking about the core players, the senior players at centre back and at full back, and the senior players up front. They uh they were shocking and they found their level. I'm afraid. And um, well, well in the, ramble on in about Awobi a little to... bit because you've Awobi's been a, a topic that you've been pretty passionate about. Um, feeling that he needs to apply himself better. I mean, I, I don't think he grades out pretty well in this game. I think you could put him as sort of a, a shoulder player in terms of calling him a young player or a senior player, but he's experienced enough. Was this a game that that shows that he's in a really troubling moment in his development? He doesn't look confident. He doesn't look sure of himself. He doesn't play with any sort of conviction. And I I know you guys laughed at me with my sort of uh, appraisal of him when I spoke about how he is. I, I did. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I, I'm telling you now, I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure I'm right on this. Everything about <laughs> Iwobi, honestly, I'm telling you now, everything about Iwobi, fine enough, there was a program that came on TV just after... The, um, the game in England called Hunger in Paradise. It's all about academy kids. It's all about kids getting too much too soon. And Iwobi was held up as the Arsenal poster child. And it just got me thinking, basically in the academy, he is the one that all the kids are looking to. And I'm just imagining getting told how good he is, what, how special he is all the time. And when it comes to on the pitch... I think he's forgot the fundamentals of the game. He used to be so smooth in possession. Now he looks ugly in possession. He looks ugly out of possession. He defensively, he's not aware. He needs help. He really needs help. He needs some help to get back to the fundamentals of the game. Receive it, move it, follow it. 
get into position to receive the ball again. Support line running. When you shoot, do not lean back. Trust your power. Strike through the ball. Shoot in practice on both feet. He gets in great positions. He can shape the ball one yard and he can. he's got great power. Work with him. You know, I, I see Guardiola working on Sterling, teaching him how to kick the ball. He's a £50 million player, but he spotted the fact that Sterling struggles to kick the ball. We can all see Iwobi struggling in the box to strike the ball on target. Is somebody at that club getting paid thousands of pounds a year going to work with this kid? I mean, I, I don't want to criticise him. I think he's being left. He's learning on the job. He's being exposed and he needs help. And he's, I, I've criticised him, and I've done it in the past, it's done. But real, right now, we've got a duel potentially turning into something, uh, turning into a piece of coal right in front of our eyes. And I think it, um, it's really upsetting, really upsetting. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I think there are a lot of young players or, you know, sort of brink of first-team players who are in a really tough position right now because they're going down with the ship. And I put Chambers in that category, and I put Holding in that category, and I don't think Bellerin is in that category. I think he's shown enough fortitude and quality to rise above it, although I think there are some fans that are feeling that frustration with him. I think Awobi is in that category, and it is a shame. And that's why I worry for players like Maitland-Niles, who has flashed some brilliant skill. He had, he had a great moment in the 28th minute where he, he cut inside, dribbled through midfield, did a full pirouette spin, and, and carried it all the way to the edge of the, the final third. Um I do think it is a little trouble playing him at left back because as a right footer, he's always trying to cut inside. Um, and then if the move breaks down, there's huge, huge exposure on our left wing. But it, it, it's just that these players are are being put in firefighting situations, um, and that makes it really hard for a young player to develop. Uh, Paul, I, I'll come to you in a second. I just want to ask Tim one thing really quickly because it's a point, Tim, that you wrote about that you've talked about on the pod, and that's Theo Walcott and mm. the usefulness <clears throat> of Theo Walcott. We saw him use so sparingly over the holiday period when we were so short of pace, when we were so short of dynamism, when we looked leggy. And we all agreed on this pod that he, you know, with all of his flaws, could have been useful. And I think we sort of agreed he wasn't being used because he was off. Um, or at least that was, I think, the conclusion. Now all of a sudden he comes in with eight minutes to go against Chelsea. Okay, maybe it was just all hands to the pump, didn't have a choice, needed him. But now he starts him in January in the FA Cup. I don't see any clarity here. Can you provide some clarity on Theo Walcott's situation, please? Um, no, there, there's not really much clarity on anything at all. Good um, that, Tim. <laughs> you're, you're not getting paid the big appearance fees for that kind of contribution, my friend. I mean, I mean so the thing is, I, I watched the highlights again, um, and, and actually there was... That's Paul's bit. Really, <laughs> I didn't watch the whole game again. I didn't okay. put myself Too through sure. that. Apparently... I watched the highlights again, and actually, in the first five six minutes, the first chance of the game is, believe it or not, Welbeck in Iwobi with a lovely bit of combination play. Iwobi with a nice final ball into Walcott in you know the the corridor of opportunity that he loves, and uh, bless him, Theo. He does one of two things in that situation: he either buries it or he trips over his own feet. And on this occasion, he tripped over his own feet and scuffed the ball. And, and, and I was thinking, like, because that was down the other end to me, so I didn't really appreciate um, the move or, or, the, or the vantage point either. And I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, it's all what ifs, obviously. But what, what a different game we could have had if, you know, six minutes in, Welbeck and Iwobi, nice bit of combination play. Iwobi makes a really good assist. Walcott buries it. What a different game we've got. What a, Probably what a different set of performances we've got from three of our first-teamers. 
in the attacking sense, all of whom um, really, really underwhelmed and were very disappointing, uh, all three of them. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just really frustrating because that was, you know, I suppose, I suppose to be fair, Welbeck, um, you know, he got a goal and he, he, he had a really nice touch for Nketiah, but largely looked like he was playing on roller skates for most of the game. And, and Walcott, I mean, the thing is, the only the only kind of thing I'm quite pleased about is it's difficult to attach like some kind of fairly imagined preset narrative to Walcott's performance because if it had been any other player, people would have said, "Oh, he's not interested." Oh, he's you know he's he's protecting himself for a move. But I mean, we've just we've seen that Theo Walcott performance many many times. That was vintage Theo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where he's just he's just not really involved. Um, and, you know, when I wrote the column, I, I had loads of people tweeting me after the game, like, oh, do you still think Theo should be, you know, more involved in the first team? And and I was like, well, if you actually read the piece, it's more about how he'd fit into the first 11, not the second 11. And, um, you know, I, I think I was quite clear in the piece that I didn't, I wasn't conferring skills on Theo that he doesn't have. Um, I acknowledge many times that, you know, if you put him in, he might. Dis- there's a good chance he'll disappoint you for a game or two. But and and this was one of his, one of his really dis- disappointing performances um, again. But and so and, what and was happening wanted- with him? Where, what what was the what was Who the knows? usage pattern of? I mean, is this just he is a cu- a cup player and that's it? And yeah. That's why he hasn't been playing. But is he off? Is he not off? I mean, there's so much I, money I think- money water here. Yeah, I, I think it's probably just because, um, you know, there's no Giroud, for example. That might have changed things. And generally the pattern of the game, you know, it might have changed a bit if Giroud was fit, if Wilshire had been available in the second team, but he's been playing in the first team, so we had to drop him out. And that probably contributed to the strength of the bench as well and blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, I tend to think it's just because what, what was really the alternative? It was to put probably another kid in there, probably to put Inketia or maybe Jeff Rennie Adelaide, who's not really fit. So I, I don't think there was that much thought in it. Um, I, I just wanted to say really quickly on Iwobi, uh, further to what Clive said, um, I, 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 when, when Iwobi came in, I thought, you know, he looks to me like a bit of an heir to Thomas Rosicki. And uh, I agree with Clive. I wish he'd kind of go back to that because... Thomas Rosicki wasn't a great source of goals and he didn't really have an amazing final ball either. But what what he did have was just that kind of get the ball, move the ball, run really quickly, get it again, pass it, run really quickly. And that's what he was doing when he first came in the team. And, and now everything just seems half a pace slower and... You know, he looks up, he doesn't always find that pass and that movement. And it's it's just a little bit more laboured. And now yeah. we're looking and I looked at him again and I thought exactly the same as I've thought the last few weeks where it's a bit like, I don't know if he's an eight or a 10. He doesn't have the final ball for a 10. He's got some nice touches in the centre circle, but he's not um, switched on and off off the ball to be a number eight. So he's kind of caught. Is he better from the left, Tim, do you think? Does it make I, I think that much probably, of a difference? Yeah. Probably yes, and with the right combination of players. With, you know, he likes playing with Alexis. He, he did really well when Alexis back. was center forward. He was sort of on the yeah. nominally on the left wing, and Ozil was over there too, and they were exchanging yeah, yeah. really well on the edge of the area. Yeah, exactly. And now, now who's he exchanging with? Um, you know, it, it's it's not quite the he same. Also, he he um, doesn't use his his fullbacks when he's on the right. He doesn't open his body and use his yeah. fullbacks. So he, everything is is uh, cut back and cut back. 
inside the other thing i'll say it's is in front of defenses basically yeah yeah and and you know sometimes you can tell a lot about a, a player's form when they make the decisions they make under pressure um you know if they're feeling calm and cool in the in the mm. match or if they're feeling uneasy and in the third minute Awobi gets the ball on the right touch line and he's under a little bit of pressure and this is the championship side you know he can he can get himself out of most pressure situations and he just turns back towards his goal and kicks it straight back towards the defense like aimlessly without looking that's his first instinct. I am in, I am in mm-hmm. and that put yeah. us under pressure. Put it on right away. Defenders yep. are running back, and it was I the thought, first sign that this is going to be a problem because Pears left running in mud, um, and we got yeah. away with it. But that to me said something's not right with the Wobby. Uh, Paul, I'm, I'm sorry, I kind of shut you out here for a minute, but you can just take it as payback for some disagreement we had months ago. It, um, it's all right. I, I I just took it upon myself to interrupt everybody else, so yeah, I got the words. You, go. so. you got your words in. Good um, job. So so a few things. I mean, I have a suspicion that maybe Arsene Wenger has been betrayed by the Europa League a little bit. And what I mean by that is he we got through the group playing these weird second team amalgams, right? These mm. combination of young players out of position, you know, Nelson at right wing back, Maitland Niles at left wing back and you know, just this weird collection of second string and, and youth team players. And I think we had a lot of really lackluster, really poor Europa League performances, but the level was so low that we got away with it. And I suspect that maybe the manager took that lesson to heart maybe too much and felt that he could get away with it again. And I think Forrest may actually be a better team than some of what we faced in the Europa League, to be quite honest. So I I guess my question to you is that, you know, as part of the problem with this, not the level of any of these players individually, and admittedly some of them were very poor, but just that this is a disjointed and dysfunctional collection of players who aren't playing enough, players who aren't used to being in the first team, players who aren't used to having this kind of pressure. Is it not the individuals so much as trying to pull this random assortment of of players together? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I kind of intimated in my first comment that, you know, we weren't a million miles away from this kind of a performance or a result in many games. But, you know, some happy circumstances. I mean, they had a lot of fortune in this game, Um, especially some of their early moments that showed them the way where balls uh, getting deflected back or squirting out or challenges that broke their way. Uh, You know, there's one where Debushi goes in kind of one on one uh, with their winger. And the ball squirts there. So it kind of showed them the way of what to do and what to do more of and more of. Uh, and events turned their way. And I think this could have been many games, Europa League, uh, Carabao Cup, etc., that could have turned out this way. Well, and Yeah. yeah. I, well, how about this? I mean, because here's, here's a concern then. I mean, I look at this team and what I see outside of Ozil in terms of creativity and Alexis in terms of goal scoring and, and, and maybe Lacazette as well. We have a lot of nearly players, right? I mean, Iwobi's very press-resistant and good on the ball, but he lacks the final ball and some of his decision-making, his engine is off. Danny Welbeck has pace and power and aerial dominance, but can't kick a ball. Theo Walcott, pace and and good finishing usually, but struggles to get involved. We have a lot of these nearly players. Um, I think think you left out one of Welbeck's key attributes. He can bundle. He's a great bundler. I agree with that. Great but, but, I mean, you know, and I, I know it's a little weird to talk about the attack in a game where we conceded four and did score twice, but ultimately, I mean, did you feel watching this game that there is a real problem in the squad right now that they're just, there's not 
enough final ball, either on the creative side or in the goal scoring side in this team beyond those those three players, those Alexis and Lacazette. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, Adrian Clark, to go back to good old Adrian, I mean, he highlighted the safe passing from midfield. Should we just rebroadcast the breakdown? Save us a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. We can just, just do that. Just hyperlink to it yeah, on you. our Twitter account. But, I mean, it's true. I mean, Will, if you think of Willock's passing and Elneny's passing, it was all very safe. It was kind of build it up to somebody further up the pitch to do something exciting, like Alexis Rosal. But we don't have Alexis and Ozil up the pitch. Reese Nelson did pretty good, but obviously we're expect. I, I love that moment where he almost got booed from the fans for passing it backwards. It kind of turned into more groans and stuff when they realized it's a it kid. Was a, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, not just a kid. It's the kid they all wanted to play in the first team. You know, yeah. all season. Yeah. You know, we'll sacrifice the season. We'll live with Wenger as long as we play Reese Nelson. You know, we'll call it good. And it's like, there's this moment where the second 11, he pretty almost gets booed for playing it backwards to our uh, center backs. And I think it went back to uh, uh, Ospina from there. So, yeah, but I, I, I agree with Tim. I don't think there were too many choices in this lineup or the bench. It kind of was what it was. This was maybe, I wouldn't quite call it an accident uh, waiting to happen, but I think that the water, you know, a function of whether the boat, the the uh, rowboat makes it to shore or not is how choppy the waters are, and the waters got choppy early here. Uh, they rode their momentum. They got they took advantage of all their breaks, and this this could have been a lot of other games, but maybe with a slightly better bench to call on, which we didn't have over the holidays. So yeah, I mean, look, Ospina made some saves that kept us in this game yeah. too. I mean, this this yep. could have had a more embarrassing even more embarrassing uh, final scoreline. And you just kind of wonder, I, I mean, here's an interesting statistic. We were the only top six Premier League team to not play their starting first-choice striker even one minute in the third round of the FA Cup this weekend. So, I mean, every single other top six time, top six side gave their first-choice striker some minutes. Um, do, you, do, you know, do you know what it tells me? Um Maybe. Time for is change. That, <laughs> uh, is that Wenger, I mean, we all know this, but the, there's a level of, of black and whiteness about this. Wenger is all about top four. I think he's he set that as his criterion for staying or going, and it shows up in these selections. I mean, it's it, you know, it's not even close. He plays the first team for the league, and he plays everybody but the first team for the cup games and their Europa League. But the next and game isn't even a league game. It's a, and I granted it's a semifinal against Chelsea, but it's Carabao Cup. He'd be allowed to rotate for that. Like, would it have killed him to have Alexis and Lacazette on the bench for this and play him 25 minutes? Well, he said people are on, uh, you know, he's talked about a number of players being on the edge. Uh, if he plays them in this game, if he rests them for the next game, like the this Wednesday game, They've had some rest, but if he plays them this game, he's playing players that his season depends on. So uh, it makes perfect yeah. sense to me. But then they, can't, then they can't play at the weekend, which is the Premier League. Yeah. So we, quick, quick poll of the podcast. Quick, just quick poll of the podcast. Yes. A, a yes or no vote. Uh, or a one or the other vote. Tim, would you rather have mm. seen something closer to a first-choice 11 in the FA Cup game this weekend or the Carabao Cup game in midweek? 
Um, just, just first thing that comes in your mind. Probably the latter, just because it's the semi-final. The Carabao. Okay. To be honest, I, I, I didn't want either, but now I'd, I'd play a strong team on Wednesday. Clive, Carabao or FA Cup? Which would you have rather seen? And, and again, result aside, I know that's hard to put aside. Which would you have picked? Honestly, I'd go Carabao, and normally we're out the Carabao by now. And so, if we weren't, if we didn't have that semi-final Wednesday to play the strong teams. See, I guess the reason I disagree is just because I look at it and I say you can play a slightly stronger 11 against Forrest, have your your first choice players on the bench available for the Carabao Cup game, but then they're ready and rested for the Premier League game at the weekend on full rest. If you play a a first 11-ish side this midweek, you're putting yourself behind the eight ball for the Premier League game at the weekend. So it just but seems if natural. In the red zone, they're in the red zone. You're not really yeah. choosing between the FA Cup and the Carabao Cup. You, the red zone's the red zone. Right, but then if, you're giving them a week's real. rest. So, so Paul, to your point, if, if, if he does go closer to a first-choice 11 in midweek, then at the weekend, we can expect to see more rotation. And, I, you know, I think we're in a really delicate period right now. Bournemouth away, we have to be getting three points. I don't trust a rotated side to get us anything anywhere right now. Yeah, and I don't. Uh, I think if we judge everything so far, it's the league and nothing else. So I think Bournemouth will t- take preference. I mean, it's it's literally his his job, his legacy in his mind. He's everything's on the league. It, uh, I don't think winning winning the Caribou Cup and coming fifth would he say to himself, "Well, that's kind of like winning the FA Cup and coming fifth. I think it's a stretch. Um, I mean, does anybody think it's 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 close enough for him for Arson to persuade himself? He's, no, no. Well, no. so the the reason I think he'll it, that things will have changed now. I think his plan would have been to rotate for both games. Now we're out of this. We've got two free weekends coming up. We've got a free weekend now at the end of January, one in the middle of February. Um, we've even potentially got one at the end of February, which I think is quite likely. Um, if Man City and Chelsea play one another in the Carabao Cup final, that's another free weekend we've got. So we've got two free free weekends coming up in the next five weeks, and that's why I think he'll slightly change tack. And he can do some light rotation, I think. So if he's got Ramsey coming back, for example, mm. play Ramsey in one game and Wilshere the other. Um, or, you know, if he's got Monreal coming back, there's plenty of opportunity to, for rotation amongst the defence. Mm, yeah. He can drop, you know, he can perhaps play Alexis Wednesday and, um, you know, and and then maybe not Ozil, for example, because he's been carrying an injury. So I, I think, you know, it doesn't have to be the exact same 11 for both games. I think he can be maybe a bit intelligent and, you know, play a spinner. That's fine. Um, you know, yeah, so so I think it will be close to full strength on Wednesday now. Yeah, all right, Clive, let, let's get stuck into a little bit of this. I, I just... Real quick, I mean, I think at the point that you're rotating massively for the FA Cup, then you're still rotating for the Carabao Cup. Top four is slipping away, and all that's really left in your season is cups. It's like, what are we even about anymore? Right? I I don't. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't overthink it too much. Honestly, I think we're overthinking it. I'm I'm almost boring on saying, did he chuck this game? 
did he chuck it? Because I'm, I'm, I, I was thinking about the free weekend, but Tim's giving me the detail, right? So, did he chuck this game? Because it wouldn't surprise me if he did. The Carabao Cup, he, we never go this far. I mean, maybe once or twice in 20 years we got this far. And so, he's had to, re- he can't go to a London derby against Chelsea and throw that game because that will cause riots, right? So, he just, he just can't do it. Whatever team plays on Wednesday, They've got the energy to play on Sunday. Could have had a week off previous, so they can do the two games. I think we might have one or two difference. I was I was absolutely quite shocked not to see Cochrane in the team on Sunday. I know there's some transfer rumours come out today, but was he being saved for yes. the Wednesday game? Yes, and I think quite he might exciting be being saved for the Wednesday game. <laughs> and what and what you have to think about also another there are two players we talk about Europa Cup team, but the two main t- leaders of the Europa Cup team that are not there in Jack Wilshire and Giroud. I mean, they are the, the offensive leaders, the technical brain has sent them to the pitch. You take them out of the Europa Cup team, I'm not sure we'd have done so well. And they are out, they're both out of the, that game. So that means the, that's our FA Cup team, basically. And we were called, we were found wanting. We didn't have that leadership, we didn't have that direction, we didn't have that focal point, so and we were Clive, short. can I ask you, do you mean chucked, or do you mean he took too big a risk? Uh, I, I know what, Paul. I, if I say chucked... I, I'm, I, I honestly believe we could not sustain the competitions we're in anyway. You think he, he, he was going to want one. to lose this? I mean, this guy wants to I win. Don't think, I never want to say. I never want to say. If you say chucks, right? Someone's going to say, "Well, he he doesn't want to." Of course, he didn't chuck it. And what can I say? You know, what can I say? But you look at that bench, and you ask me, did he really want to win it, or did he really prioritize something else? Right, it, simple uh, as oh, that. Oh, he prioritized something else. Been, There's no question about been, that. Uh, Of all the managers, though, Clive, of all the managers who espouses the virtues of football, I don't think I don't think even if his career depended on it, he would chuck a game. Would he take too big a risk? Well, yeah. Well, let me say this. Yeah. I think he would gamble. I, I, I mean, terminology, terminology are you yeah, open to criticism, yeah. right? So, and we all know that there's one competition who's the record holder of the FA Cup win. No one can criticize him if he loses the first third round game ever. So I, he I took can. a gamble. It didn't quite work <laughs> out. It didn't quite work out. He can ride it. I come on, May night lost to Bristol City the other day. They're still alive, right? So we, 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 just, we just got to ride it out for a couple of days. And he cannot lose to Chelsea. He cannot be embarrassed live on TV against Chelsea and Bournemouth. No way. And so he has to choose. With the injuries that we have, he had to make a decision. And he chose one. And his senior players let him down on the day. But I don't also think he helped them with the formation, how he left them. And we've spoken about that already. And I think the, between the between the whole way we approach this game was poor by the coaching and poor by the players who were given a lot of trust and responsibility and they did not repay him yeah. at all. And, and I will say this, I do think this decision was informed by the Europa League. I do think if we had crashed out of the Europa League using this kind of team, he would not have picked it for Forrest. I think he said, this is the kind of team that got me yeah. through in the Europa League and get me through here. Ultimately, we did get two goals and I think it is patently ridiculous that he went with Holding and Murtisacker as the center backs in a back four and then had them stand on the halfway line and and then let them do it for three quarters of the game. I it's just astounding to me that he he did that. I I mean, this goes back to if you guys remember, you know, I talked about this a little on the Arscast Extra when we took the the six nil at, at Stanford Bridge and the five one at Am- was it five one at Anfield? That yeah. year? Yeah. And and this the six three to City and the three nil to Everton that that season, you know, the thousandth game, Arsene Wenger's thousandth game, we were playing two center backs on the halfway line and fullbacks up in the final third, and all you had to do was hit long balls into the half spaces, and, and we you were in on us. Um, 
Liverpool were up, what, 3-0 after 15 minutes or something in that game. Um, I just, it looked like that again, except with slower center halves and against a championship side. Um, Clive, let's get the game out of the way. There's a lot of really fun, (laughs) in air quotes, stuff to discuss here. Um, But I do want to get to the penalty decision at the end. So a couple of things. First of all, do you think Debushi's tackle on, and, and hat tip to Armand Traore, who is one of the worst players I've ever seen play for Arsenal, um, undoing us in the FA Cup. Do you think uh, that that is a penalty? I can see why it was given. Um, he did get the ball, but you tackled him from that angle, so you're you're asking the referee to make a decision, and he and he made one, right? So um, I think it's eighty uh, percent certainty as a penalty. You know, there's been a lot of focus on the penalties we give away, and we give away so many of them, and the refs are making bad calls. But I think there's something we have to acknowledge. If you force referees to make really, really hard penalty calls a lot, they're going to get some wrong. And Arsenal wind up crisis defending so much in their own box that we put the referees in those situations. We put players in positions to dive and win penalties. We We are doing so much crisis defending in our box that there's just a lot of action there, and that's... Yeah. That's part of the problem. So, all right, so it's a penalty. First of all, it's a double kick on the on the penalty, right? I mean, I, I thought it was yeah. clear. Yeah. Um, well, 100%. Immediately, the moment I saw it, not even a blink, I shouted double yeah. touch straight away. Double Same. touch. And I, it's, I, I know what, what annoys me so much are people just don't understand how a football, just don't understand the game and, and try to debate that. I mean, the referee can't see that. He should not be refereeing a top-level football. I mean, that is absolutely obvious. That ball was going in the bottom corner and it ended up looping down the centre of the goal and going in. Everybody could see the strange trajectory immediately. And I just cannot believe it was it was um, not a free kick to us and we got the other end and see what yeah, happens. It had the trajectory of a volley. Um, you know, but on a on a penalty kick, which is not capable of happening. Um, so I mean, look, I know Tim is a, a huge, huge fan of VAR. Kidding, Tim. <laughs> um, I don't want to go into the VAR debate. We've had opportunities to go into it. I like to avoid it because it is a whole podcast unto itself, and ultimately a pointless debate. It'll happen or it won't. We'll see what happens. But we, we need to do that podcast. We need to do that. All right, podcast. we can do it. We can do it. Just I'll not really when do. just not when Tim's on. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but seriously, like like. Decisions like that that are purely right or wrong, A or B, you know, there's no nuance, there's no interpretation of the laws, and he spent 45 seconds over with his assistant who's 40 yards away from it. Um, Is that a situation where a simple call down to his ear, we looked at it, it's a double touch, rule it out, is the way to go? Um, I mean, I I would have thought so. So I I agree. I was right up the other end, and I instantly went, that's a double touch, and I was about 90 yards away. And I instantly, I was like, he's got, that's got to be retaken. That's a double touch. It actually would be a free you kick. Don't, you, yeah, us, yeah, yeah, yeah. Us, yeah. You, you don't need a video replay. You're a referee, you've got a referee and a linesman, and they're, uh, literally their only job is to watch the penalty being taken. Now, you could say, right, well, the ref's got to watch for, like, encroachment as well. Okay. But he's got a linesman. Look at, like, the position linesmen take when there's a penalty, is to stand behind the goal line to look for exactly this type of thing. So if two of them couldn't see it, when when literally their entire job in that moment is to watch the penalty being taken, like, I, I don't see how... It, it's not it's not a, oh, let's go to video. Like They're both staring at it, and it's not, it's not even in open play when things are going quickly. It's basically they weren't concentrating. Both of them weren't concentrating. And, uh, you know... 
it obviously obviously it's like a bit futile to go down the road of like uh raging over officials decisions after a performance like this but that i you know i, I had no problem with either penalty they're both stuck like that debushi one if that happens on the halfway line uh, he'd get booked. Yeah, um, absolutely. An, you can't go through the man from behind and point no, to the ball no. like and, you know you can break legs that way. <laughs> no, and and that that tackle's been outlawed since the '94 World Cup. Like there is no player in professional football that was playing when that that rule wasn't there. So that's and Debushi's like that. He's incredibly rash. He's um, he's he's not really an Arsenal player. I don't think he's just he, everything he does is incredibly rash. Boot. He's he's a bit old school. He's a bit old money. I think as a defender, and that's that's one of the things he he kind of does. Um, he's a bit rash. He also had a couple of give, give up be. moments in this game, by the way, where he was just walking while players ran by him. But that's another. Issue. I mean, he's he's in his thirties. He shouldn't be like this rash kind of slide in thump about kind of uh kind of thing but yeah don't, don't I, tell I, matthew flamini that <laughs> but that's that's like you know obviously I, I i always end up like having a lot of sympathy for referees and trying to explain to people like oh, you, you don't, you're not trying hard enough to understand the job and yes i have like um i have doubts over var and its implementation and, and actually i think uh, on the totally football podcast james richardson um he distilled it beautifully and he said he'd changed his mind. He was, um, he was a, a passionate advocate of it and he says he's not now, but the reason it's an unresolvable debate is he put it, he just said, if you believe that uh, football is a pure sporting endeavor where the best should always be rewarded, then yes, you go with VAR. If you think, if you lean more on the side that it's entertainment, no, because VAR will take some of the entertainment away. And, and I think that's why it's an unresolvable debate. And, you know, th- there's no right or wrong. It just depends on what floats your boat. And for me, I'm in like the more slightly like entertaining, this is for the fans uh, type of camp. But, you know, other people aren't. And that's 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 up to them. But it's, it's got yeah, cultural. But, it's got cultural echoes, too, because, I mean, obviously yeah, here yeah. in the United States, like all the sports use it. I don't think they all use it well. I think it can be maddening. But because we're so exposed to it, we just have no cultural objection yeah. to it. You know, and also I, I completely acknowledge that, I, you know, I'm a bit old money in terms of football. Like cup defeats hit me more than anything like the the. This goes down to me as one of the most painful defeats of the last four years. And the other ones I'd reel off are like Watford, that quarterfinal at the Emirates where we got beat. Before that, in 2013, we went out at home to Blackburn in the fifth round. And I was on my knees for about a week after that game. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a bit kind of old fashioned like that. I like the Cups. I like the break from the Premier League. I like something different. I'm really looking forward to Wednesday and I, I acknowledge that mo- most people aren't like that anymore and that's fine but yeah so I mean to, to row it back to your point usually you know I'm, I defend referees because I can understand what's happening you know I understand why they give decisions and you try and put yourself in their position but for that penalty and I'm not saying it would have any effect on the game but both him and the linesman just weren't concentrating they weren't doing their jobs they weren't looking properly they didn't know what had happened and they they either didn't know what happened because they weren't watching or they don't know the rule and uh, neither one of those is particularly um, you know, particularly looks particularly good on them even if both the penalty decisions were spot on well said Clive put a, put a uh, uh, period on the end of this sentence what, what, what's the final yeah, word I on mean, I'm not 
you know, I'm not a fan, but let's see how it's implemented. They're only going to implement it in small doses, but you know that'll extend. But I was chatting on Twitter on the week last week to Danny Higginbottom. Actually, he does a lot of good analysis on Sky, and and we came to a conclusion that actually what needs to change for VAR to be really successful is clarity on, on the of the laws of the game. Some of the laws of the game are quite complex. So how can you bring VAR into this into a complex law based game? A lot of the laws are based interpretation. You look at that. If you look at them, that, that word's all over them. So if they're really serious about this, they need to look at the laws of the game, make sure they're understood, they're clear. Lots of the pundits don't understand the laws of the game. They just clearly don't. They don't know what they're commenting on. They're driving an agenda which is just not informed. They just don't know the rules. And so you're creating a decision environment which is just not normal. And so it needs to be really thought through. That's why I like to think about lines initially, which is obvious. It's fact. Is it? A, did the ball go out of play? Was the penalty inside the box, outside the box? So, yeah, it's, 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 let's see. I, I, I'm not a fan. The soul of the game has to be protected for me. The, the moment a goal goes in has to be protected. The debate has to be protected. But... There's so much money in the game. Let's see how they implement it before I completely rubbish it. But I do think looking at the laws of the game, simplifying that so we know what we're referring to could be a step forward. Yeah. I mean, personally, I think there are ways to implement it that that balance, uh, Tim, your concerns about entertainment yeah. and drama and atmosphere and flow with a desire to have slightly better accuracy. I think the standard of refereeing is not as high as it should be. Um, maybe that's just easy to say from my armchair, but... I, I do think it could be better. There may be human solutions to this, not with technology, but ultimately it'll all be robots playing the game officiated by robots anyway. Um, Paul, let's get to the important stuff. Do you think... So, is Conte going to have like a prison-style shiv at Old Trafford? Is Mourinho going to go with the eye gouge? What's How's that going to play out um, when they meet up in February? It's great stuff. The only thing I hate about this thing is it's absolutely letting uh, Mourinho take the heat off the fact they were debating whether he would get fired. Mm-hmm. That was the that was the fucking media discussion. How close to Mar- was Mourinho to falling out with the whole of United and their top brass? That was the news story on Mourinho before this fucking Conte shite came out. I, I would be loving every moment of it, but every moment I enjoyed, I'm thinking, I much preferred when we were talking about would Mourinho make it to the summer. So, so disgusting. you're saying it's actually taken Mourinho off the hot seat a little bit? Yeah, it's back into his territory. Uh, you know, Chelsea and United fans going at each other. The whole fo- it's classic uh, Donald Trump stuff. Shave, you know? shave, shave down pocket comb though for for Conte, maybe like just in his breast pocket, and he takes it out, and it's actually a shank and a couple quick stabs. Over the the pre match handshake, you don't even see him do it like real quick prison style. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, okay. Plus, pretty convincing because he's a man who obviously needs to use a comb just right to get the yeah the, to get the bald spot covered. Um, the formation, right? Yeah, yeah, no shit. Um, I'm enjoying it. I really am. Let Arson sit on the sidelines. He's got enough fires to fight. Let Conte take on Mourinho this time. A um, couple of things, Paul. So there were some quotes that uh, came out pre match from Arson Banger uh, related to Sven Mislintat and. Uh. Uh, I uh, I interpreted them as somewhat condescending. I know others did not, and John Cross, I think, tweeted that that 
actually hearing them, they didn't come across that way. He made some comments about, you know, he might know some some player at a small club in Germany, but we know all the players, and yeah. it's going to take him a while to integrate because he's got to learn all the scouts here. And for me, it's yeah. not hard. For him, it's hard. He's coming into a new situation. For me, it's very easy. I mean, yeah. did, did these strike you at all as a, a manager bristling and pushing back against a, a change in the hierarchy and the, and the structure behind him, or do you think it's just reading way too much narrative into it? Yeah, well, I have to laugh at the hilarious thing I've just formed in my mind that I'm about to say because it's like hilarious. And I, if it's I the know, aristocrats again, I'm I'm muting no, you. No, okay. no, no. I know what I'm going to say, and like, so I know it's you know I I kind of got the punchline. But anyway, I read it twice. Um, <laughs> oh, is, that, is that the punchline? <laughs> <Jeez. I'm sure. laughs> For those of you who knew the podcast, Paul's thing is he watches every game twice, which we are supposed to presume makes his uh, analysis more accurate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ha- hasn't no, worked. But it does. But yeah, okay. it does. <laughs> so anyway, that thought was forming in my mind, and then I thought, oh, that's that's actually vaguely amusing. Um, so the first time I read it, I read it exactly like you. I'm like, my head and my fucking hands, I'm like, why did we hire this guy? Why are we going through this shit for Wenger to say, uh, actually, he's only telling us what we already knew. He'll have to change. It sounded very much like he'll have to change to me. We know every he'll player to, in Europe. We know everybody <laughs> yeah, in them, Europe. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we signed the ones we did and Dortmund signed the ones they did. But it, so my first pass at it, if if that's that was the correct meaning, was okay, Arson. If we know every player, every player in Europe, then our analysis of them, our synthesis of of their fit, and our execution of our dealings is utterly shite. Take your pick, <laughs> or we don't know every player in Europe. Now the second time I read it, it seemed much more sympathetic to saying hey guys give give him some time give him a chance he's adapting to our organization uh, i mean i already knew the first thing they would have him do is go and talk to all our existing scouts before he decides who he keeps and who he sacks it's kind of unfair to your organization and to arsenal's values to bring a guy in fire all your your scouts just because he has his own scouts without reviewing the the uh, positions of those guys and for Sven to decide out decide who he wants to keep and who he wants to lose after he's learned the culture of the the club etc so it could mean either um i guess on reading it i'd give it a much kinder reader reading the second time but the first time maybe uh kind of goes more to my fear of what might be going on which is arson has been slow to adapt to other people putting, throwing some sauce in the recipe, I, some I, ingredients I, in. I guess the point is, right, it all sounds fine hearing you say that until you think of what Arson could have said instead. Because what sure, he could sure. have said instead is, very excited to get to work with him. I admired yep. the work he did at Dortmund where you can clearly see that he found some very special talent. I think we've had some great talent come through Arsenal, but the ability to go find some of these players that Sven has identified in the past would be a huge boost for us. And I, for one, am really looking forward to having a couple transfer windows with him. I mean, that again, yeah, yeah. that's something he yeah. could have said. He didn't yeah. say that. He chose to be more uh, careful. He chose to be more guarded. He chose to be maybe condescending if you want to read it that way. But even if you don't want to read it that way, there is no line anywhere in those quotes. You know, if I'm the CEO of a company and they bring in a new CTO, and I feel that this CTO is going to potentially challenge me for the direction of the company, I might say, 
well, you know, he's moving over to a big organization now and he's, you know, he's got to learn uh, all the people that we have here. There are a lot of people across a lot of buildings spread out across the world. So, you know, he's got to get integrated and, you know, we, we really have a good handle on our business, but, but he's here to play a part. I could say that. Yeah. Alternatively, I could say he comes with a tremendous pedigree from some of the best businesses in the world. I've admired the way he grew those businesses and innovated there and I'm excited to have his type of innovation in our new or- in our organization now yeah. to help us grow. What you don't say is often as powerful a statement as what you do. And the fact that Arson did, you know, I remember when Lucas Perez arrived, and I was kind of surprised because Arson was so guarded in his comments about Lucas Perez. He had very little to say. When Danny Welbeck arrived, too, he, he was, yeah, very circumspect. That's a great word. And I mean, you know, I don't know what his foreskin has to do with it, but, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that would have been more of a you joke, Paul. Well, but anyway, uh, so a hat tip to you. But anyway, yeah, okay. So, so would it have been funnier if I said it. Uh, well, you would have delivered it better. Could um, I, could I d- just kind of add on this? Uh, I would the, love I, that, please. We need some <laughs> sensible comments here. So I, I agree. It kind of sounds a bit circumspect. The only the things I'd say is actually there's nothing he said that's that's not true. He will have to meet with all of the scouts. He will have to adapt. Like none of those things are untrue. But no um, shit. Also, <laughs> you know also what I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, I, I think there's there's two other things to consider. One, Wenger has been very very outspoken about um, how bad the recruitment and the scouting has been over the last year to that's eighteen fair. months. Yep. He's been very public about. You know, constantly we need to improve scouting. So he has kind of called for this. Whether he wanted to spend specifically, who knows? But he he said many times, I want you know we need to improve in this area. Um, and I think second of all, um, on this subject, um, I've completely forgotten what I was going to say. Um, which yeah, that's not great. Is we, it? Can just, guess, we can just type in "girl from Ipanema" until you get it. <laughs> I guess the question was: Is was he calling for better, uh, lower end scout structure? Or uh, may, maybe. Well, actually, I've just remembered calling. What I was say okay, now. fire away. So we, we want the genius. Bring so there's it. basically there's a lot of hype around this at the moment, partially because we're all so hungry for change that we're really hanging on to this. And Sven gave an interview himself where he said something like, "You know." shit people are expecting like miracles straight away and also you know this was this question was asked in the context of a 20 year old greek defender that we've signed who is now being loaned out to Werder bremen and you know basically i I think the phrase i saw someone use on twitter was in that age bracket you've got to kiss a lot of frogs and you know this this greek 20 year old guy he's probably going to be the first of many signings of this profile and you could say that Arsenal's just trying to take the heat a little bit off of Spen by saying, look, not everyone that this guy finds is going to be a genius. Um, but, you know, and, and to take the pressure off of the Greek kid a little bit more. And I'm sorry for calling him the Greek kid. I can't remember or probably Constantinos Mavropoulos? Monopolopoulos. Okay, well, the racist <laughs> award of this podcast goes to, goes to Paul. <laughs> So yeah, so there's. Let, so let's say, let's say xenophobe. That's not really racist. That's xenophobe. Xenophobe. It really does depend on what question was asked and how yeah. it was asked. Yeah, exactly. I, you could interpret it as he's looking to take a little bit of pressure off of this twenty-year-old who's, you know, a bit probably a bit of a gamble. Will probably do quite a few signings like this, but this is the first one that it's out in the public domain that this is one of Sven's guys, and uh, he, you know, he could just be saying, "Look, this guy, he's he's not." Uh, there's a really good Rory Smith article about this, about guru thinking. And I think he's probably just being like, look, not 
ever, he's not going to find us like 20 Aubameyangs. That's not going to happen. He might find Well, then us he's one. a disgrace and we should sack in, his ass, is what I say. In, <laughs> in signing 20 players, he might find us one and that, that will be, and that will be totally worth it. Yeah, well, I'd take I'd take an Aubameyang. Uh, uh, Clive, you have a theory on that? Only, only quickly. I think that Roy's Fifth article, by the way, is fantastic. If you can catch it, and we it are just, kissing it just a lot of quiet. people's asses today. We've kissed the Totally Football Show, the Breakdown, <laughs> Rory Smith, Ars Blog, who deserves it, admittedly. Uh, it, but I mean, you know, can we just kiss our own ass for a little bit? Do some yoga, yeah, get, get some kissing going on. But he, also, I think it's, uh, it was on a podcast I, I where... I can't... Sorry, Clive, i got to butt in here. I can't reach my own ass, but if I kiss your ass, uh, Elliot... We could do a human centipede. Around and, yeah. Okay, moving on. Clive, please. <laughs> yeah, I just... I, I have heard that, you know, just from listening to people and reading that uh, Sven's sort of... Um, his sort of speciality is the younger players, right? So, so it's very interesting, just like your, your CTO analogy... When you join a big firm, you're often defined by your first hire, and that t- tells you your strategy. So that'd be interesting to see if we get more of this. I'm with Tim. I think we can see a lot of this coming in. But also, I'm wondering if Raul is the is the top end. He's the guy who's going to have the relationships at the top end with the agents, etc., to get the more of the marquee players. So I see a potential. If I want to guess the strategy going forward, I see all the best young players we can possibly find with potential to be superstars being uh, missing Tat's role. And I see Raul looking at the top end, dealing with the agents that Wenger doesn't want to deal with, don't want to talk to, morally doesn't want to get involved with, but they're the people that are running the game, so we have to. And I see Raul doing that piece of work. And that's my little theory. See how it plays out. Okay, so speaking of, of transfers, let's get into transfers. I, I always like to do whatever gets us clicks and downloads. Clive, um, we are linked to Johnny Evans again. He is a player that blows no one's hair back, and yet yeah. I kind of feel like we have to do it. What's your take on Johnny Evans? Um, I think we're at 12 million, as he was last summer, before everyone got interested, and we should have retired per put him in the academy there and then. I think I think Paul tweeted out earlier today. I think he saw Johnny Evans as a uh, as a perma second replacement, and I thought that was quite smart actually. But stop, I actually stop think for a couple of seasons. Yeah, I think so. We need some leadership, right? And and defend defenders don't reach their peak till around twenty eight, twenty nine, and that's where Johnny Evans is. I think he's twenty nine right now. So um, I admire him actually. Get get booted from Manchester United you don't normally come back to a top club if he doesn't come to us or go to City Manchester United tried to get him last year he didn't go the fact he's come back what does that tell you that he's come back to a level or there are dearth of acceptable set of halves in the game I think it's probably a combination of both well, uh, I, 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 I don't want to see it because I want an, I want an exciting foreign name but I wouldn't be upset if he happened at the right price let me give you a counterpoint to that so Vandervaart costs seventy-five million. John Stones costs fifty million. Let's say, you know, s- split the difference. We find the hot shot center back player in all of Europe at at let's say twenty-four years old, right? A, a, a Raphael Varane level guy, yeah. and we have to. And let's say we get him for a steal. He's sixty million, right? You trust us yeah. to take someone in their early twenties at center back and bring them into this system and not ruin them? I don't. I mean, I'd rather we keep our powder dry, so to speak, by a 30-year-old who's experienced, who's almost too old to ruin, who won't blow your hair back, but who can be a stopgap, who doesn't use up all the money, doesn't go on a huge wage, is gone in two seasons, and then the new manager, who maybe knows a little bit, hopefully, about defending, 
can bring in that that future star because also who knows maybe holding in chambers will come back around and be sensational under new leadership maybe in a couple of seasons when arson <laughs> is gone can you imagine no really uh you know maybe they will come back around but think about it this way Murdersacker's done Koscielny's on one one achilles and if he has any continuing problems clive he he may miss stretches of this season chambers and yep. holding can't play regularly right now their confidence is shot that means it's Mustafi, who's, you know, not my favorite. I know some people think he's really talented, and really not much behind that. Don't we have to bring someone in who's a ready-made Premier League defender just to get us over the line? Yeah, I don't disagree there. I, I would agree. I don't disagree with the signing. I would like to see two. I I don't. I am concerned about the ceiling of um, Chambers and Holding. I don't think they're athletic enough, and that's not something you can develop. Right, so you've got to develop by strength or speed. One of them can develop strength. I don't think they're athletic enough. I don't think their body type is right. I think they're going to be found out at the top level. So we've got to make a decision there. Well, fuck, there one's that. got to go. <laughs> One goes for me. Come on, you guys watch the game. How do you feel when they're playing? Right. So we're not a team defense yet of our area. So let's we go to a back three system where they can survive, or at least one can survive. But none of you guys like the back three, so. Where are you doing it to protect them? So we've got a decision to make there. We need to do this. None of the other teams have slow centre-backs like we do at the top level. But just name me. They just, they just don't. They don't survive. You'll get found out. A championship team will find this out. So so would you I rather bring in the 70 million 24-year-old centre-back now and hope that Arson doesn't screw him up and there goes all our money on a centre-back? Or would you no, rather have a stopgap? I'd, I'd rather protect... I'd rather protect Koscielny and make sure we don't run him into the ground so we get another year out of him. So I'm not against it. I'm not against it. And right now, I don't want to give Arsene the money because at the moment, I'm losing a bit of trust. I'm losing a bit of trust. Look at the value of our squad at the moment. Look at the value. I saw a tweet today saying that you know, which teams have got a hundred million pound player in their squad and you know, Spurs have got a couple, you know, Man United got a couple, City got a couple. Also, what have we got in our squad? What is the value of those players that we have? It's almost like a it's almost like a Bill che- a Bill Belichick type tax. They work within the system, but as soon as you take them out, they're very, very average. I mean That's an interesting Cochran question. Could- who who would come in the biggest transfer fee in our squad right now, Clive? including well, not not just on talent including their current contract situation if we had to sell every single one of our players in the upcoming summer easy easy one for Ramsey? me easy one for me um Ramsey's contract is quite late so yeah, it's one, Ramsey one or Be- Ramsey or Bellerin and okay. Bellamy's got a five-year contract. And this is why I get so frustrated about people criticizing him. As an asset to the club, he is the most valuable. So our He's biggest 22. asset at the whole club is a, is a right back. Yeah, potentially he's the one that the top six teams would want, and Ramsey would probably be second. But that's a debate. There'll be people listening to this saying, "Well, what team would he get into?" You know, so so it's it's a debate. We don't; those two are the ones with the highest upside or potential in the marketplace, in my opinion. I say sell all the Bellerin, other Bellerin would all. get in every team in the top six. Easy. Pep yep. wanted him a long time before he settled on Kyle Walker. Yeah, yeah, I don't disagree. All right, Tim. So, so let's let's talk about the plan. I think this is really <laughs> on my mind. All right, and you you coined that that sort of uh, analogy or phrase or whatever the hell it is using some English word um, uh, of of building the plane in flight. And I look at mm. Liverpool, and it gives me no joy to praise Liverpool, none whatsoever. But they bought Oxley Chamberlain this summer, and I think they did it with an eye towards him 
maybe being the Coutinho replacement to some extent? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I, I think Salah probably was. Okay, fair enough. So, so they get Salah, they get Ox, they have Keita, mm. Naby Keita coming in in the summer. Yeah, they get Van der Vaart. Because Emre Chan's going on a free transfer, so yep. they've already sorted that out. Chan's going. So, I mean, they, they do all of that business. They'll probably get a goalkeeper in the summer, I guess. But what they've done is, well, and they're going after Lamar. We'll see what happens there. They've spent the Cuccino money, but they spent it before they had it. They had a plan for using it. They now get this 142 million pounds, but they're in okay shape because they strengthened in the summer before he goes. They're strengthening in this window, and they've already lined up, I think, the transfer of next summer already in Naby Keita is already going to Liverpool. So to me, that's a plan based on mm. cohesive uh, decision-making from the top to the bottom. Klopp has a way of playing. The structures above and around him support that way. They had an idea for how to recoup the value of a big asset, but not do it in such a way that it left the club in perilous position once he went. Um, you know, when we lost Van Persie, we never replaced him. I mean, you could argue we had, didn't replace him until Lacazette came in. Um, you know, I, I think... Most of the time we're losing players and it's a crisis and we're doing it out of a position of weakness and we don't have a plan for how to fix it. And you look mm. at, the, at Liverpool losing Coutinho and, and they look stronger, not weaker. Um, yeah. I mean, so, so I, without just going on waxing poetic about Liverpool, which is like the last fucking thing I want to be doing, <laughs> I guess my question to you is, is that, is that the example of how it should be done and just a real indictment of how things are going here? I mean, you can list it yeah. off, right? Giroud could have gone to Everton for 30 or 40 million. No matter what you think of Giroud, if you're losing Alexis and Ozil for free, you got to get money back somewhere. We wind up keeping Giroud. Now he's injured, probably can't go in January. Theo Walcott didn't go in the summer. Now we're using him again, maybe staying here. Cochrane gets mm. signed last year. Now we're maybe selling him. Alexis and Ozil, we have to keep them. Then last minute in the summer, well, we kind of have to sell Alexis. Then, well, I guess we'll keep him now. I'd say he's worth 15 million yeah. pounds. I mean, are we, are we at a really dangerous point where. We've boxed ourselves into a corner of a squad that needs to be heavily turned over with no asset value to, to recover. Yeah, definitely. I think because um, what Liverpool are doing, people joke about it, it is actually quite simple. They're feeding Barcelona and Southampton are feeding them, which is, which is a really, really simplistic kind of way of saying what Liverpool have done. And I, I fear we're going to a place that Liverpool have been in for the last decade where Same. Um, things really, really started to go wrong and they became very average and they fell down the table and were out of the Champions League for years and blah, blah, blah. But, um, and, and that's part of the reason, like part of the if you look at, they've just, they've just sold Coutinho, you know, to Barcelona. And I, I don't know because I'm not as plugged into what Liverpool fans are talking about, but it doesn't feel like there's a real sense of like, Oh my God! This is a crisis. We've like everyone seems to think, yeah, okay, but we bought Salah, and um, you know, by the way, when, when they bought Salah, and it's like when they bought Van Dyke. You you don't buy a player like Salah when you've got your front three sorted with like first, you know, like Firmino, Mane, Coutinho. Like that's that's a really really good front three. You don't drop like clubs at Liverpool and our level. And and I think the reason you and I are talking about Liverpool is because they're analogous to us. They're similar resources at a similar level. They don't, they don't go and buy Salah because they want to sit one of their front three on the bench. They do it because they know that Coutinho is going and, you know, they've lost Coutinho and Suarez to Barca now, but what have they done? 
they got them to sign contracts 12 months before they left. So they got paid. They got absolutely paid for both of them. So they picked up £200 million off of Barcelona. And what they've done quite well as well is they're actually buying, they're using that to buy Premier League talent. So they're buying players like Mane, um, Lalana, um, even Chamberlain, um, you know, guys who are already acclimatised to the league. They're basically buying the pick of the crop kind of below them in that upper mid-table. They're looking at, you know, it, it ends up being Southampton a lot. But, you know, they're looking at like clubs like Southampton, Leicester, Everton, who are in that tier below. And they're going, right, we know we can pick those players off the same way that Barca can pick our players off. We know if we go to Southampton or Leicester, we'll turn the players' heads and we'll get them. And um, and I feel like Arsenal haven't... What, so basically what Liverpool have done is they've adjusted to their position in the food chain. And that's difficult for Liverpool to do because Liverpool were at the very top of that food chain not so long ago. But they're not now and they understand it and they've adjusted to it. And I just feel like Arsenal haven't quite adjusted to it. And we've we've seen this a lot with our total reluctance to sell players, to generate revenue. We hang on to everyone. That's you it know, for we me. Haven't looked, That's it. Yeah, the reluctance to sell. Just, just he yeah. falls in love with his players and he cannot make a decision about which ones to move on when, and, when they have and value. And I think, I, I think a lot of the fan base as well, and I wouldn't say calm, but like I think a lot of people understand why it's hard to keep hold of Ozil and Alexis. Like the same way Liverpool fans understand that it's difficult to keep hold of Coutinho and Suarez. So what do you do? It's a bad situation. You make the best of it. And then you you get paid. You get them to sign contracts and you say, listen, we'll sign you up for five years. You know and I know you're gone in 12 months and we won't make it difficult for you. But what we will do is we'll get paid. And then we'll use that money and we'll keep rebuilding and, you know, they might lose Mane or Salah to, like, Real Madrid or Barca in another couple of years, but they'll probably sign them up to, like, a five-year deal before they do, and then they'll get paid for them. And, and you know, they, it, it's, it's building blocks, you know, and it's just, it just feels like Arsenal are in a bit of an existential crisis where that's concerned. Yeah, and look, the fans fall for it, too. It blows my mind. If I tweet, we should have sold Giroud. Oh, he's, he's a great option off the bench, and he can score goals. What are you talking about? We need Giroud. All right, well, we, we need to sell Ox. Sell Ox. He's a bright, young talent. He's, he'll come good. You have to have faith in him. Oh, we should sell Coughlin. Of course you say that. You hate Coughlin. He's, he's a hard to I, You can't keep them all. You have to renew the squad. You have to sell players when they have asset value. You have to identify the players that are the building block of your future, of your club, of your success. Keep them and consider everyone else fungible. And we are bloated in the middle. We are the worst kind of wage structure. We should have stars on huge huge wages and squad players on low wages proving themselves in the game, hungry to make their name in the game. We are bloated in the middle. We have a lot of El Nenny-type players, players who are decent, on a decent wage, who are very comfortable. And that's how you wind up with Debushis you can't get rid of or Kieran Gibbs who stick around forever. And, you know, I loved Kieran Gibbs. I have nothing against him, but it was pretty obvious for a few seasons he was doing himself no favors at Arsenal and doing us no favors by being here. And so we are bloated in the middle. And, and, and that is a byproduct of Arsenal collecting these middle-tier players who never hit the high notes and not selling them when they had asset value. We got great money for Ox, no doubt. Had we sold them a summer earlier, it's a big amount. And, you know, even when we sold players like Nasri and Van Persie and Sesk, it always felt like we did it from a, a position of weakness, not collecting the size fee that we could, letting the player hold us ransom, letting the player 
push us into doing something yep. we didn't want to do. But you look at Liverpool, the way they sold Suarez or the way they sold Coutinho, sign them to deals, then sell them the next season for massive uh, release clauses or max- massive negotiated fees. We never did that. We just never did that. And, uh, you know, to me, look, I, I don't know the inner workings. Uh, maybe it was offered. Why we weren't able to get Alexis and Ozil to sign deals with uh, uh, buyout clauses in them on much bigger wages and say, look, you stay one more season, you make a much bigger wage, we put a buyout clause in and people buy you then. I don't know. I don't know why we weren't able to do that. And there's, there may be a very good excuse for it, but what doesn't seem clear is the plan. So, so I, I want Paul and Clive to, to get a last word on this before we say goodbye. So if it's cool with you, Paul, come to you first. I mean, is, is selling really the problem? I mean, I know we need to buy, but part of the reason we can't buy is because we don't sell. We certainly need to clear out some some cap room salary-wise. Uh, we're going to have a problem generating fees selling. Uh, we, as, as you guys have eloquently pointed out, we got problems all over the shop, and there's no easy answer, except as, as Liverpool have done, to know your place in the scheme and embrace it and go with it. We have one ace here, go, to go back to the guru thing, um, is if Sven is actually a guru and if the club embraces that and we go for a certain profile of player that almost kind of a young uh, Dortmund kind of player and start bringing those guys in with the right manager and early era Arsene Wenger would have been a great manager for that. Uh, he's, he seems to show every indication at the moment that he has lost that inclination that ability that he's unfortunately a lot of everything and nothing much of anything at the moment he can't pull together a coherent approach and then you know my nightmare scenario is that Sven starts turning up these opportunities and arson hums and haws and dallies and doesn't pull the trigger and so unless he has some miraculous conversion because he's hit a new bottom Sometimes you got to hear hit bottom to change, but it just doesn't seem to show that. You got to hit uh, that bottom. You got to yeah. hit that bottom. I mean, uh, I've been saying uh, that for years. You have just yeah, got yeah. to hit that bottom. Um, uh, <laughs> so yeah. So the so the hope. It, I mean, either a miraculous conversion on Arsenal's part, and we we accept where we are in the world, and we sign exciting new players and try and build. Uh, or we need a new manager that's copacetic with Sven, with hopefully PowerPoint Ivan, with Raul, though to Clive's point, I don't think Raul is necessarily... Raul is who we needed a few years ago when we had money and we were going in the market for Ozil and Alexis. Um, Sven is who we need to get shit done now and the right manager paired up with him. And Arsene's got... A few months in. In a way, Arson needs to persuade. Sven. I'm sorry. I still think, Paul, you need someone overseeing where all the money's allocated on wages, where all the money's allocated on fees. Understanding that you can spend a little now because you have some coming in down the road. I just think Arson let but that get totally Ivan. out of. Well, it that, should you be. don't. Shouldn't that it be? Should I mean, be isn't Sven the director of football? I mean, that's what the director nope. of football does, isn't it? No. no, he's head of recruitment. That's Raul. He's director of football. Uh, sorry, so I didn't mean Sven. I meant, I meant Raul. Pardon me. Raul. Yeah. Is who should... Yeah, right. It, yes. Not Ivan. Yes, if that's... That would make sense as to... Uh, Ivan's the chairman. He's he's making the commercial deals. He shouldn't be dealing with the football. 
Well, Raul, but Raul's the deal maker. He's yes. the fixer. Right, but I think he should also be the one who is, you know, has a, a, a big freaking whiteboard in his office that shows where contracts are expiring, what he thinks everyone's market value is, what wages people are on, who, what clubs are interested in buying our players, what clubs are interested in selling their players. Anyway, look, Linus, I know you're listening. If you got to hit that bottom isn't the title, I quit the fucking podcast. Um, <laughs> Clive, last thoughts on, on you know, our recruitment. You typed something in the chat here that I think is so true, by the way. You look at LF, LFC, Liverpool, what they've done, and it's kind of similar to what City have done, just on a slightly different level. Fast, intense, technical, goal-scoring players. Salah, even if you don't like Oxlade-Chamberlain, he can drive and he can I run do. and he's fast. You know, Asane... Those guys, you know, they are collecting quick, powerful players. Keita will will be added to that. Um, you look at City, and of course, with Sterling and De Bruyne and uh, Gabriel Jesus, and they're trying to get Alexis, obviously. End product, end product, end product. Players that put you under pressure in the in your defensive third. We're so short of that. We're so so short of it. Yep. I mean, the word I use to steal from Gary Neville is devastation. We used to have offensive devastation. A lot of it was wrapped up in key players. But when you played Arsenal, when when there was a corner against against us, we, we were dangerous, right? Defending a corner, we were, we were a threat. Right now, we are slow. We are predictable. We have no identity. And the players that we used to sign um, were just... You could tell when they came on the market. Remember Zicky came to Arsenal? He was such an Arsenal player. Perfect, right? And Nasri, when you saw him first time, you see him, you think, Arsenal player. Playmaker, snappy, moves with the ball, moves off the ball. Yes, moody, but unbelievable technical patterns, right? And and we had players like that aplenty, and we didn't know. And now, we, what is our player identity? Liverpool are defining their own player identity. It's the modern game, the ability to do repeat sprints, be technical under pressure at speed, and have the quality at speed to put to threaten teams in different ways. And when you lose the ball, you become a very quick defender. You put pressure on and you test people's technique. That's where the game's going. As a player, you spend three minutes on the ball in 90 minutes and 80, 80 plus minutes is off the ball. So you need to have the ability to work off the ball. I'm afraid we're focused on the ball. And, um, and our on the ball devastation is not what it used to be. We haven't got players that people are scared of. So right now we're in a real situation. Our squad value is low. But I am, I don't be too depressed. I am quite interested that about this Greek player. Not, I'm not saying he's going to save us, but the fact he's in, it's done. And to pull your point about Arsene sort of um, hesitating, this seems to be done quite quickly. So that's a, that's a promising sign. You know, that's a promising sign that he may be bought in because maybe he realizes that he does not own tomorrow and tomorrow will end for him hopefully this summer. Yeah, well, that that's that remains to be seen. But. Uh, what also remains to be seen is what we do in the Carabao Cup. It's coming up this midweek on Wednesday. We are playing Chelsea at... Stamford Bridge. Stamford Bridge, yep. that place, yeah. Uh, playing Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. Um, a team that we've played well, I mean, to be fair. Uh, the only thing we know for certain about this game is that we will have two penalties ruled out by the video assistant replay uh, referee. So... Aside from that, we know nothing. Uh, what I do know is I will hopefully be joined by all these gentlemen to discuss that match on our next podcast. Tim can be found on Twitter at Stoberto. Thank you, Tim. My pleasure. Paul can be found uh, on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Thanks, Pause. Mm-hmm. And Clive's on Twitter at Clive P A F C. Thank you, Clive. 
Thank you very much. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. And please give us a five-star review. Write nasty things about any of these gentlemen uh, in the comments under your review. So real simple, just five stars and then just spew vitriol and opprobrium and you know bad juju and all of that stuff. Just get in there. Dive in. Whatever you got to say, just not about me. In any event, uh, we really appreciate you listening. We're sorry we had to discuss such a bleak moment in the club, club's history. But you know what? It's always darkest before the next dark. Uh, in any event, we will talk to you uh, after Arsenal 10, Chelsea 0. No.